Once we get the grid parry, we're not dependent on incentives. That changes everything, and we're not that far away from that, which is exciting, and we'll even grow even more exponentially. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to share this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. We partnered with Jersey City Tech Meetup on how solar technology is changing the world. The actual event was on Tuesday, July 30th in Jersey City, New Jersey, and we had an expert panel who've all actually been interviewed on the podcast. It was our moderator, Suzanne Waters from Renew Energy, who's co-hosted several episodes with me. I was actually on this panel as well, as well as Chris Grablitz from PV Pros, which is an O&M provider, Steve Schward from Schward Consulting, which is an engineering firm, and Juan Triol from Stratasolar, and Stratasolar is one of the biggest EPCs. It was a great event, and it brought a lot of great perspective. We appreciate all the people who attended near and far. People have asked us to have events, live events like this, where they could meet with us as well. The event was outside, so there were definitely some sound issues from it, but the team at Podcast Laundry has done their best job to make it as clear as possible, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. We're going to definitely have more events like this where we're doing like live podcast tapings. There also will be video as well that Jersey City Tech Meetup created. I'd also like to thank Ben and Joe from Jersey City Tech Meetup who reached out to me to partner on this amazing panel discussion. And I hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you. Thanks for coming out. Appreciate everyone coming. We have an awesome panel right here. We're going to discuss solar energy, how it's affecting us, what the future looks like, and how it's impacting Jersey City. So really excited to hear from these people who are all a lot smarter than me. I'm going to pass the torch to Suzanne Waters from Renew Energy, who's going to be moderating the panel. So everyone give it up for Suzanne. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming out tonight. I'm from Renew Energy. I will be moderating the panel tonight. I guess I'll take this opportunity to introduce everybody. You guys want to come out on the couch? You recognize everybody's voices from the Solar Maverick podcast. Everybody here today has been a guest. So I guess we'll get to let everybody go down the line and tell us where their names, where they're from, and what their companies do. Hi, my name is Benoit. I'm the CEO and founder of Renew Energy. We're a solar company here in Jersey City, and I'm sure we'll get into a lot more detail what we do. Steve Schwerd, Schwerd Consulting. We do solar, technical consulting, design, engineering. My background is uh, electrical engineering. Hi, Juan Triol. I work for Strata Solar. We are engineer procurement contractor. In other words, uh, solar general contractor. Hey, this is Chris Grablitz with PV Pros. We're over in Hoboken. Our company provides independent engineering and maintenance of commercial and utility-scale solar systems throughout the United States. Okay, so Chris, while you're holding the mic, we're going to start with you. Can you tell us what is some of the technology that goes into solar energy? There's a ton of technology, especially over the last few years, that has brought value and efficiency throughout the uh, different segments. And you'll hear kind of where each of us fall in line of a solar project. But uh, I think in terms of technology, really just capturing data, having it, knowing how to sort it, and then knowing how to 
use it and evolve from it in the future is just a tremendous resource from the oper- for uh, operations and maintenance of PV systems. Can you tell us, Benoit, why should building owners and landowners look into going solar? Sure. Just I'd give a little bit of background of Renew Energy. We develop commercial, industrial, and utility-scale solar projects. Building owners should definitely look at solar in New Jersey. It's a way of saving money and then obviously going green. There's great incentives for solar energy. There's a six, there's a 30% investment tax credit. There's also accelerated depreciation. And New Jersey has great incentives for solar. It's called an SREC, which is an environmental commodity that incentivizes solar. We've actually brokered for 28 million in SREC transactions. And landowners should look at it because you could potentially have a solar field and you could receive rent or someone would buy land to basically develop a project on your site. And so that's the high level benefits of it. Thank you. And let's see if we can get some other opinions on this next question. How has solar energy changed over the last 10 years in the past? It has significantly evolved. You know, one of the obvious areas is in the evolution of equipment, efficiencies of the solar panels themselves, the inverters that convert the DC from the solar panels to the AC and connect to the grid have improved greatly. For instance, you go back 10 years. Solar panels, maybe back then, were about 15, 16% efficient. And when that, that efficiency is in, in converting the sun energy into actual power, and today it's in the low 20s. So that's not significant, but what's really happened is the panels themselves, their power density, has increased greatly. So a solar panel may have been, we were probably designing 180 watts. Now they're about 400 watts. So the ability to have much more power and energy generated in smaller areas is a great benefit, and that's continuing to evolve. And then one last thing, because there's so many I could talk about, is really like any market, as it's grown, the quality of everybody's involved. I talked about the quality of the materials, but engineers have got better. Contractors have got better. Everything down the road can, continues to improve. Yeah, and to follow up with Steve's comment, contractors, we have gotten more efficient, more safe-oriented, quality-oriented in faster methods. What you could do on the ground, now you could do it up overhead and vice versa and on the maintenance. Anything to add to that? Not much, not much more to add to that. Juan brought up a, a good point. There's a lot of implementation of technology through drones. And drones are not the technology themselves, but they've created uh, mobility for other technologies and some that have been around for a long time. Uh, One that we specifically use when we're doing maintenance on an annual basis is thermography scanning with drones. So we're looking over all the modules in the array, and you can imagine a tremendously large utility-scale plant where there's hundreds of thousands of modules. It becomes very difficult to locate single panels that have faults. But by deploying drones, you can move very quickly through an entire array. From those images, you can pinpoint locations where you have to make corrective action. Definitely a innovation that we've seen over the last two to three years that has a common staple in our, in our maintenance scopes of work. 
what is some advice you guys would give people looking to break into the solar industry? The industry is great, so if you're thinking about it, my first bit of suggestion would be do it. It's a great industry. You'll find many great people. We've competed. We've cooperated in many different environments as people move throughout the industry. And I think that bringing adjacent technology or adjacent industries and that technology coming into the solar industry is advantageous to try to uh, implement a new career here in solar. Yeah, you could join podcasts, you could come to meetups, you could talk to any of us after the show or even via email or Twitter, LinkedIn. There's several ways to get in, find out, and don't be scared. There's 266,000 solar jobs as of last year. So it's not a small industry. We have more jobs than the coal industry as of now and many other industries going forward. Yeah, and following that up, I tell people whether they're right out of college, looking to get into a career, people shifting careers, do it now. We're all dinosaurs in the solar industry because we've been doing it each about 10 years. So you go into other areas, you've got people with 30, 40 years experience. We're old timers. You don't have that to deal with. And especially bringing your skill set from another area because it's important to identify and remember. If you have a finance background, that's a big part of, of solar energy and solar development. You know, engineering, design, technical, the vendor side, operation side for construction and management. It runs the gamut of a whole industry. It's amazing when we think about it. We've all been in the industry for 10 years, and it's amazing because Chris has only worked in the solar industry, which, if you want to hear, is pretty amazing. It's one of the fastest-growing industries in the U.S., and you can't outsource those jobs, the installation specifically. So it's an exciting industry to be with, and this is a great opportunity to meet. Sorry about the technical difficulties. You guys told us a lot of great positive things about the industry. Are there any downsides that you can think of, and how are these being addressed? We're talking about an industry that's very new and growing, and there's growing pain related to that. I talked about the 30% of cash credit, and it's dropping down. So we're basically saying this is a new industry and we're going against monopolies that have a lot of control. You're talking about utility companies, fossil fuel companies who are have a hundred fossil fuel lobbyists to a solar lobbyist. The economics of solar makes sense and it's going to continue to make sense. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that people have a perception that solar is costly. But it's just amazing to see how They talked about it before with the price declines, the efficiency we're seeing in panels, the technology improvement. It's really a game changer. And people don't realize fossil fuels are actually being subsidized as well by incentives. But those lobbyists make sure to market about solar having incentives and not fossil fuels. I think that's the biggest challenge. Once we get the grid parry, we're not dependent on incentives. That changes everything, and we're not that far away from that, which is exciting, and we'll even grow even more exponentially. I don't think any of us are going to really want to talk about the downside of solar, but the utility companies, from their perspective, the downside is that, obviously, solar energy 
is producing during the sunlight hours of the day, right? Even from your 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., it's dominating. So it helps reduce the power plants, the fossil fuel power plants. So they're being downsized, shut down to degrees, but they still have to be available at night times when people get home at dinner times and all of a sudden there's a power spike. So there's a value that doesn't really work for the utility companies because there's an oversupply during the day when there's high penetration of solar in different regions, different states, and then the big drop-off later. So there's a change away from what we have here in New Jersey, which is called net metering, when the meter spins backwards when you're producing more energy than you're using, and it flows back into the grid. So essentially, the utility company is paying you a retail rate for energy for what you produce. That's starting to change to having different values associated with when you use the solar. And then, so with that, there would be a premium on off hours providing it back into the grid. And energy storage is a topic we'll shortly talk to again. And that's going to improve that downside for everybody concerned. Yeah, another downside, Steve and I were just talking before this, in the aesthetics. So the traditional blue, metal, silver frame, TV module, solar panel, that is not aesthetically pleasing, you could get around it with the black-on-black TV modules and also, as of lately, solar tiles. So there are ways around this for you to go solar should you like to. So there's no excuses at this point if you really desire. And also one, one last thing, deforestation. So in the U.S., we do allow deforestation for space limitation, whereas in Europe, they're more strict with it. So that's one of the downsides. We do our best in getting to higher-density TV modules and other practices. The industry has evolved throughout the past 10, 20 years, and that's something that we will continue to improve. Solar will make up a tremendous amount of how we generate energy throughout the United States. You see it more on houses, buildings, utility poles, uh, on top of parking structures, on cars. It's deployed in many, many different places and you're starting to recognize it more and more each day. And what that is, is proof that the industry is growing and that it's going to continue to grow. And we've seen in a number of cases where solar is a very, very cost-effective way to generate power. And you don't have to just generate power in one central location, but now you can put it all over the United States from residential, commercial, utility scale. So you're going to see this become an integral part in the way that everyone consumes power throughout the United States over the next 10 to to 20 years. The incorporation of storage, which is a complementary technology that allows you to pull some of that solar power generated during the day and provide that back during the night while the solar is not generating its own power. This is another way of continuing to integrate how solar provides the majority of, uh, or can provide the majority of power to residential and commercial spaces throughout the country. 
connected to, to have in New Jersey, as much as you hear about, talk about solar, we are barely at the 5% mark in nationwide, under 10%. Solar and wind, we're right under 20% mark, and this is with all us here talking about it. So imagine in 10 years, when we're, for, we're passing to get to that 30%, and then 30 years, 100%, you'll see it everywhere. Our industry, the cost goes down every year. Unlike other industries that go up, steel, copper, aluminum, solar goes down. So it will be the cheapest, more cost-effective form of energy in the future. Right now, the predominance of solar energy is photovoltaics. So those are the, the solar panels we've talked about with the metal frames and the semiconductor material is all silicon. And that's what absorbs the photon from the sun, converts it into the DC power. The real game changer is there's research going on now. It's many years away, but they're going to develop semiconductor materials that'll allow uh, it basically to be coated onto flexible material and rolls and wrap buildings in the photovoltaics. That's a long way off, but that can be a real game changer. It's not just the price, the panels are going down, the efficiency as well, as people have mentioned before with the technology, and then energy storage is a game changer because really solar, you could use it during the day to be able to stay vivid. At night, it just changes everything. So every home could basically have solar. It's almost like landlines and cell phones. You don't really need, you'll still need the infrastructure of transmission and distribution grid. And obviously there'll be other types of energy. But then once you have solar and storage coupled together, it's just gonna be a game changer. That's where you're gonna see a lot of growth. But it's amazing because storage as well, the price is going down exponentially as well, specifically lithium-ion technology. Everyone's familiar with Tesla. I, I used to actually work at Tesla Solar City, and we're getting a lot of expertise in basically mass-producing batteries, and the prices are going down substantially. And I'm saying only a few years from now, and it's an exciting time. With energy storage, with policies continuing to drive the proliferation of solar, what it means for the benefit of the environment is fossil fuel plants will be shut down in large scales. So even PSENG recently announced that their goal is by 2046, they will have no fossil fuel plants except for two of the newest natural gas plants that are online. And they've already shuttered their coal plants in New Jersey. A lot of very exciting information. So if people want to learn more, learn how to stay active in social media, what are some sources that they can turn to for that? We actually have a podcast. I know we didn't really explain it, but I have a podcast called the Solar Maverick Podcast, which is one of the most popular podcasts. And all our guests have actually been interviewed on the podcast. And Suzanne Zucco, I was just on the podcast. And we have Kevin, who's the producer of our podcast. They wouldn't be here without him. He has also a company called Podcast Laundry. He's the producer of our podcast. 
He also has his own podcast, Create Your Life. There's so many solar podcasts coming out. There's also ppdmagazine.com, renewableenergyworld.com. We've written several articles there. So if you go to renewenergy.com, you'll see the articles on LinkedIn as well, following certain people. I know we put a lot of educational content out there, conferences, events like this. Here in the state of New Jersey, all the renewable programs are ran by the New Jersey Clean Energy Program, which is abbreviated NJCEP. If you go to njcep.org, you can see the different programs that are here in, in New Jersey. You really just have to stay active. Looking for news in and around solar, I personally like to use different news sources. There's a number of magazines that are within the solar industry to keep current on events. There's also Solar Foundation, Vote Solar, Utility Dive, Solar Wake Up, uh, Renew Energy Newsletter, and any of us. I mean, we are your resource. We want more people to come to our industry. Also, another great resource is Desire, D-S-I-R-E.org. It basically summarizes state-level legislation of solar in all 50 states and actually help has the links to the actual filing so it's really helpful so we have a little bit more time so i wanted to ask we'll go individually if you guys get a little more in detail about the companies you work for and what got you into solar i gotta lead that every time Benoit had mentioned, I got right into the solar industry straight out of college which is getting close to 10 years now two kids 10 years ago and and a lot of ups and downs in, in the industry. But over the last 10 years, I've seen tremendous growth. Had a blast helping build and grow a company right here in Jersey City. A lot of people that work at the company are all local folks, Jersey City, Hoboken, New York City. Banding all these younger people or people that are looking for something new, getting them together, putting ideas together, and essentially have blossomed a independent engineering and maintenance company that started working on smaller systems here in New Jersey. Very close, we have a number of systems just over in Hoboken. Small, but that has grown over time. So it's, it's just been really exciting to get into this industry in almost 10 years later, see the industry grow as a whole, meet great people, work for a great company. And again, like we've said, inviting everyone to please go after it if they do want to enter the industry. Yeah, and as I mentioned, I work for Strata Solar, so we are blessed to stand from the commercial, industrial, to utility scale, operations and maintenance, in development, and energy storage as of lately. And yet, yeah, do not feel intimidated to come into the solar industry. We were all somewhat hesitant in the beginning, and it turned out okay. <laughs> For real, it's, it's not intimidating. There's a lot of good people. There's ups and downs like in any industry, but overall, 70-30, it's good people wanting to teach you, mentor, and just have more cool people to work with, ultimately. You know, my background had always been doing engineering, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, and the architectural building industry, and worked on a lot of energy-intensive type of facilities, and then early on in the game got involved in sustainable design, did multiple LEED-certified projects. And that was my first introduction to solar. 
you know, going back to the early mid 2000s, you'd want solar on lead projects because it gave you a lot of points, you know, reducing the energy. Everybody I came across once seemed like a snake oil salesman, and it wasn't really economically viable. But by the later 2000s, all of a sudden it, it turned around. And New Jersey had programs. There were good people I met in the industry doing the projects. And eventually, we not only were bringing in solar for those projects, but we started having the opportunity to design solar for solar companies and do the engineering designs. And about five years ago, I had such a great interest and passion for it, I just started to start a consulting company purely focused on solar because I saw the growth. I saw the need that was still out there. Best thing we ever did. One of the things that happens in solar right now, there's good, as Benoit mentioned, federal tax incentives, but it's very much a state by state. There are states that put out strong renewable portfolio standards. They dictate to the utility companies what they have to do and it goes from there. So right now, New Jersey's a leader, and there's, there's a lot of good states, but there's so many untapped states for solar. So that's why the industry still has so much growth ahead. My solar story as well, I've been here for 10 years. I can't believe the ups and downs and amazing the growth we've seen. I started Renew Energy seven years ago. We're, we're based here in Jersey City. Before that, I was that Solar City Tesla. I worked for Lyndon Rye, who was the CEO of Solar City. He's Elon Musk's cousin, and I had the opportunity as well to be in meetings with Elon, which was amazing, and it actually helped with starting my own company as well from the inspiration I had with working with them. And then before Solar City Tesla, I worked at Vanguard Energy Partners, which is a national installer that's installed over 100 megawatts worth of projects. And Suzanne and Juan, we all worked together. And Steve was our outside engineer. So it's, it's funny, it's a small world and we all are doing different things in different places. I also actually worked at a private equity fund where I analyzed investments in renewable energy projects. But 10 years ago, I thought solar was gonna be the next big thing. And when I told people, they told me I'm crazy, and it's amazing. I am crazy, people who know me. <laughs> Everyone here has a certain crazy, especially with ups and downs of the industry. Do you want to follow up to what Steve was saying about the incentives? Maybe go more in-depth into an SREC? Sure. We mentioned SRECs. People are pretty surprised that New Jersey is the number six state for solar. They're like, how come New Jersey doesn't have as much sunlight? as California, Arizona, or Hawaii, but the incentive is really strong. You have high electricity costs. It's called a solar renewable energy credit, which represents one megawatt hour of solar energies. States have required energy companies producing energy in the state 
to have a certain percentage in renewables. If you don't, you have to buy these uh, solar renewable energy credits. Basically, it quantifies to about 23 cents per kilowatt hour. So to give you an idea, like a commercial industrial customer in New Jersey pays 10 to 12 cents. So the incentives is almost two times more. And so that's why New Jersey is a great state. I also mentioned the investment tax credit and five-year accelerated maker's depreciation. The investment tax credit's 30%. Then you have accelerated depreciation instead of doing like straight line depreciation for 20 to 30 years. You depreciate the system in five years, so that represents 60% of the value of the system. So that gives you a little bit of the economics of New Jersey and why it's a great state for solar, and it'll continue to be a great state for solar. Something I want to talk about that we didn't really touch on when we were discussing this solar community solar, I feel like that's an important concept to discuss. Does anyone want to start with that? Sure. We could talk about briefly. Renew Energy, we're, we're developing uh, one of the first community solar projects with the New York Housing Authority. We're developing solar on 38 different buildings in Manhattan and Brooklyn, and basically community solar is where residents in the service area, meaning in that it's Con Ed service territory, which is the five boroughs, could buy solar energy and there's a, basically a credit that they get. And what's exciting about this project is we're actually training NYCHA residents to install solar. A certain percentage of the electricity is going to low-moderate income housing. We're helping actually do a restoration and replacement with the solar and then actually providing NYCHA with a lease. So it's a pretty high-profile project. The mayor's office, the governor is involved, and community solar is actually one of the fastest growing parts of solar because um, anyone could buy solar energy. There's no long-term commitment with the contract, and there's this perception that solar is only for the wealthy. So a lot of states are coming out with community solar legislation just because community solar is in New York, it's totally different in New Jersey. It's kind of what Steve said. Everything's by a state-by-state basis. And developers are excited about it because you're developing a utility-scale project. And instead of getting utility-scale rates when you sell to the grid, which is two to four cents per kilowatt, now it ranges from 10 to 20 cents per kilowatt. So it's a lot higher returns. And we're really focused on developing those type of projects. I had mentioned before there's three apartment buildings on the waterfront in, in town Hoboken. They have, for how large or number of apartments, it's a relatively small PV system on each of the roofs, but standing on the ground, you wouldn't know. There's actually a number of solar systems throughout Jersey City and Hoboken, more towards the industrial section, so you have large flat commercial roofs, which are great in New Jersey because we have more than we know what to do with, and now... When you have a building that can't necessarily benefit from generating all its own power, let's say it's a big building, an air-conditioned space, and they don't need all the power there. As Benoit was explaining before, the community solar program that New Jersey is implementing allows for a large-scale project to be installed on this commercial rooftop, let's say, over in, over in Jersey City. And as a PSE&G customer, you could essentially subscribe to pieces of that project without having to put a single solar panel on your house. And you'll see a discount 
on your rate through a billing transaction. That's a concept that is new uh, to the state of New Jersey. It's been implemented throughout the country, but it allow areas like Union County, especially more industrial areas, you'll see more solar going in. Along with Jersey City, we have another project that's sort of along with Hoboken in Jersey City where we're doing some testing and commissioning, which is turning the system on as this PV system in downtown is being finished. We'll go out there and ensure that everything has been installed properly, test and measure, make sure that system can safely come into into operation, and then we'll monitor it and make sure that it's operating as it should be. And uh, it's not too many, not too far away from here where we are today. Yeah, I want to stretch the local to Massachusetts strata. We've done some community solar projects in Massachusetts, and the same concept. You build a larger system. And that is going to be more cost affordable for it. So you have no excuses. Your roof is shaded, there's too many trees, no su- structural support. So with community solar, it allows anybody to participate. Now, there are also third-party investment vehicles that you could do for your house if you really want the entire benefit. I mean, as a cost estimate, I can tell you either way, you'll be fine, you, whether you want to go through third-party investment, direct acquisition, direct purchase, or community solar. You can go solar if your heart really desires. So first, following on the community solar, yeah, absolutely. It's intended to open it up to low, moderate income, but anybody in general. So you don't, if you can't put it on your house or you don't want it on your house, like Juan brought up the downside of aesthetics. He thinks it looks pretty. I don't want it on my house. But I could subscribe to a community solar project and by doing nothing get 10 to 15% from the energy used from solar instead of your traditional energy supply. But the other benefit of community solar is in New Jersey, as in most states, a facility cannot produce more energy than they use. So you may have, let's say, a very large warehouse. It could be half a million square foot, but it's a small energy user, and they could only take up 20% of the roof. Well, now they can get a solar developer to cover the roof with solar and pay them on a lease basis. And then also, Suzanne asked about Jersey City. To point out one large one, Goya Foods has a big facility here in Jersey City. Probably about four or five years ago, they installed 3.5 megawatts of solar on the rooftop. So that's a very large installation. But we subsequently did solar on their facilities in Secaucus, outside of Buffalo, New York, and in California. And they're so into it that they are doing a round two in the Jersey City one here to add about 800 kW. They are taking up every usable square inch of that roof for solar. It's interesting. Actually, Chris recommended an opportunity that we helped a real estate developer who is building residential apartments in Jersey City. They were basically PD pros or pure power to the engineering. And then we helped with the developer with all the processes related to developing the project. They're a real estate developer. They didn't have any experience in solar. So we walked them through the whole process. And 
I don't know if people have seen, but if you go uh, to Liberty Science Center, they actually have a carpeted solar system. Actually, ShopRite and BJ's has solar on top of it. A lot of people don't know that. I think we're in the right order from Project Start to Project End. You guys want to specifically talk about your roles in the project's lifetime? So we're New Energy. We do the project development and financing. We're also a consulting company. We broker first 28 million in SREC transactions. We manage about 12 megawatts where we do the SREC management of projects in New Jersey. If you want to have a conversation with Suzanne, she's an expert on it, which is very archaic and really intensive. And then we source financing for projects. We actually had a client put $500 million. It's an energy company. And last year, we brought them $30 million worth of projects that we helped with due diligence. We originated the relationship with the other developer and then helped them with the due diligence. And then we also develop our own projects. And we have an expertise on financing. So we're really initiating interaction with the customer, which is the building owner or landowner, to potentially look at commercial industrial utility scale. We help them move through the process to get it construction ready. We partner with Steve Schwerd and Schwerd Consulting to help us with the financial, technical, and feasibility. Steve and I have been on a lot of sites walking and on roofs itself. So that's where we are in the process. and. It's unique to have a panel with, with this type of expertise and different sort of roles in the industry. So a lot of times in solar, the sales cycle for the commercial, industrial, utility is a long period. It could take years. It's the financial models that all have to come together. And then whether it be the financier, the solar developer, or a design-build solar contractor, would engage somebody like us to do the design of the PV system, to do the electrical engineering construction drawings uh, that are produced for permits, for bid, for construction. Our extended team will also, if it's a rooftop project, you, you need to evaluate the structure to make sure that the roof framing has adequate capacity to support that solar. Or if it's a ground mount or a carport, you need civil engineering and environmental to prepare the site plans to put everything together to evaluate the land for drainage and all that and to go get approvals before your local zoning or planning goes. So that's where we come into the mix. And then the contractor comes. Once we have a beautiful set of uh, engineering drawings, we could start the, the procurement aspect, which on, on the commercial side, the construction, it's a little shorter. The, the lead times on the items is not as long when you go to the utility side. When you're interconnected 115,000 volts, transformers take a year to get to the site. You have to plan almost two years ahead of time. Whereas residential is a few months, commercial half a year to a year, and then utility two years. So, and then the construction side, we'll do on the, the structural, which is either on the rooftop, will be setting all the money structure, the ballast block, 
And then on the ground mount will be the poles, all the foundation, ballasted, penetrated, not penetrated, and then set the PV modules up, and then the, all the civil work involved, and then the electrical. So you have the DC, the direct current inside of the PV plant, and then the AC medium voltage that goes to the tie-in, your interconnecting point. And once the construction's finished, the system is live. Although it looks static, there's thousands of volts going through the PV plant generating energy. So just like your car, you're doing an insurance on it, which is why operations and maintenance is such a crucial part of it. So now you paid for, you designed, you built, and now you're operating your solar energy system. So you've got 20 years ahead of you, and the role as an operations and maintenance firm is to go from a desktop monitoring perspective and an in-field perspective is to keep the plant commercially available as 100% of the time. So we do things such as daily system checks. We're looking for and forecasting events. So as we see, if we're monitoring the system, we see it deviate, we're able to essentially create a twin of that event and as we rerun our performance checks each day, if we can recognize a twin that we coded and said, hey, if we see this, there's a high likelihood that you have a failure, we try to catch those things in advance. So we call that predictive maintenance. So again, this is all from the data that comes off of the site. This requires somebody sitting there with a trained eye to be able to interpret these data points as they come out in real time. And then once they see something, they're able to spring into action. So normally with a system, you would be out there doing routine maintenance. As you have data and you're able to forecast things, you can go out and schedule predictive maintenance and ultimately correct something in advance of it failing. So again, you're ensuring that the system is going to be kept available and able to produce power. From time to time, the systems, they do break down. They're not bulletproof, so making a, an expeditious repair, knowing what you need to order, how long you need to budget for in order to get that part back in service, and then ultimately putting it back in service and validating that, hey, it's been corrected and we're normally operating. Again, we're talking about a 20-year lifespan, so as technology advances from what we've seen over the last five to 10 years, the same advancements are gonna be happening in the future, so we're looking at existing systems, figuring out a way to incorporate new technology into it in a term that we call repowering a plant. So we're trying to leverage some of the existing costs that's there into incorporate new technology. So we're looking at new technology and ways to invigorate existing systems, going back to a system and incorporating batteries, new solar panels with higher efficiency. So essentially taking an old system that filled 100% of the roof, and now you have a system that for a panel that is 50% more efficient in terms of the square footage on the roof, and now you're able to put 50% more power up on that roof. So evolving over time, seeing that there's opportunity in existing systems, the things that go into monitoring these systems on an annual basis, it all comes back to the financial model that Suzanne and Benoit put together, making sure that these projects are meeting their internal rate of return over a fixed period of time, possibly evaluating if to sell it to another owner who wants to make improvements. These are all tasks that revolve in and around the operation and maintenance of PV plants. And then once you have said, no more power is gonna be produced on this site, 
we decommission sites. We're taking the, the components apart and we're, we're salvaging what we can, recycling what's easily recyclable, and we're looking at opportunities to potentially reintroduce a new PV system to that site in the future. We have quite some time to sort that out, but these are things, as the industry matures more, we have to think about, we constantly have to consider what's going to happen 20 years from now. We've been here for 10 years, we'll be talking again, and we'll be saying, oh, we're 20 years in, we'll see a lot of changes over the future. Now. I have a question. Are there some costs that tend to be, like, constants that you have to go in service? There are common issues. I think that there's certain trends that we see that's not necessarily based on just because of it's a PV system, but there's different best practices that are implementing when systems are designed or systems are built that tend to lead into repeated failures. So long as we have guys like Steve designing, making sure that things are serviceable, accessible, parts are readily available in the future, Guys like Juan over here, who has a reputable installation and procurement team, they're able to build the site with a high level of workmanship, so you're not seeing a lot of deficiencies, which end up leading in the system not being able to produce power for periods of time. Thank you. I mentioned about community solar. There's actually a community solar program in New Jersey. They're having a pilot program of 75 megawatts for three years. So you'll start hearing about community solar still very early stages in the development. As Steve said, it takes could take a year or two years. So you'll start maybe seeing next year. Well, the approvals actually haven't come out. Which projects will qualify for 75 megawatts? will happen in September, so you'll start seeing, potentially in 2020, community solar projects in New Jersey where you could buy power from solar projects that are in your utility service area, which is PSENG, and it's perfect if you're an apartment owner, and it's not actually a physical exchange, it's basically a credit, as what I said. But one of the challenges is people think it's a third-party energy supplier, and there's been some negative perception because of the early sort of teaser rates, and then they increase the rate substantially. So it's really important that everyone gets educated about what community solar is and understand that it's a totally different product than buying third-party uh, energy from a supplier. And for those of you that are curious on your personal carbon footprint, out of the 17 metric tons that we individually each consume, 30% around is energy. So your house, whatever you occupy, you could attack a big part of that 30%. Transportation is another like 26, 28%. You could do that with an electric vehicle. In agriculture, 10%. So it, it piles up. So anything you could do will have a significant impact. First of all, I want to say thank you everyone for bearing with the technical difficulties. Can't be a tech meetup without some tech difficulties. So thanks for bearing with us. We're just going to open it up to some Q&A right now. So any questions you guys have, start with you. Quick question. So I'm not in the solar industry. I'm pretty ignorant on a lot of this stuff, but I've enjoyed learning tonight. Everything sounded really positive, but I'm curious from your perspective, what do you see as the risks or headwinds that you might be facing? It sounds like at least on the state level and a lot on federal level, you're getting a lot of support. So that might have been something I suspected I thought might have been difficult, but what are some of the risks or things you're supposed to be making it not so easy, not so rosy all the time? 
to get where you want it. Sure, we didn't actually talk about this, but there are actually tariffs on solar panels President Trump has put, which has hurt the, the industry, and unfortunately, it's hurt the people who actually install solar panels, especially in areas of the United States where they've lost jobs and then they've been retrained to actually install solar. So we're talking about coal country, the Midwest, and the South. But what's amazing that I've seen over the 10 years is the solar industry is very resilient. We keep coming up with creative solutions. You know, the cost of panels, even with the tariffs on panels, actually inverters and steel, which has made the cost of projects more expensive, but it's been also offset by uh, the technology improvements, the smaller panels that are more efficient and the costs going down, and also companies with 100% renewable energy goals, states that are actually passing legislation to have 100% renewable. So even though there's been tariffs, which has been difficult and has created a lot of uncertainty and unfortunately has hurt job growth and hurt a lot of jobs, we've been pretty creative. And I think the big thing too is, I talked about this 30% investment tax credit. Right now, there's going to be basically a step down starting in 2021 at 26%, and then it goes actually to 10%. But right now, there's actually bills in both the House and Senate to extend the 30% investment tax credit. And we've been aggressively working with different lobbying groups that we're a part of to keep that 30% incentive. But I think these are all short-term things that we'll overcome as an industry, and we've seen in 10 years, it's been very resilient. Yeah, absolutely. Risks to the industry always start with policy. And there is a lot more money spent to go after anti-solar versus the solar energy industry's lobbying efforts and the, the money gets contributed. But as Benoit said, everything that's happened along the way even there was a big fear that the tariffs were going to cripple the industry, and it didn't happen. And what we've witnessed, you know, even with the early incentives that continue to lessen, which makes sense as the industry grows, the supply and demand factor helped. We went from $6 a watt, let's say even for a decent-sized system, maybe in 2011, 2012, that same system would probably be about $1.50 a lot now. So the prices have dropped that much across the board. And the other risks, especially to businesses that are putting solar at their facility, or if you're a homeowner, the risk is always getting the poor performing contractor or company. But that said, the quality of the industry continues to improve year after year. Not to drive over the uh, tariff wagon over and over, but to put it in perspective, so the tariff purpose had good intention to bring more jobs in-house in the U.S. Now, the tariff repercussion actuality was something like 17, 18 thousand jobs that we lost, whereas for facilities, you only needed something like 2,000. All these facilities are self-automated. You don't need a lot of personnel to manage this 
facilities that manufacture PV modules, the solar panels, mounting structures, inverters, etc. So tariffs have caused a big repercussion for lack of knowledge, in my personal opinion, or from the administration. But policy, it's definitely one of the top three biggest obstacles, I would say. By show of hands, how many people have an electric car? How many people would consider driving one full-time? Thinking about switching, pulling the plug, if you will, from the gas station, how frequent, I guess keep this in your mind, how frequent you see a charge station and kind of what those hurdles are for you to actually plunge and, and go into an electric car. And as you're thinking about that, think about the concept of these electric cars being powered driving in and around our roads and being plugged in from time to time and potentially having the ability to tell utility companies when you want the power in your car, you can plug in and, and charge as you like. If you don't need all that power, you're able to sell what you've stored inside your car and having the ability of buying and selling power distributed throughout the grid as you plug in, selling it to the utility. And think about that concept along the lines of how we're, we're distributing solar throughout the country, being able to produce power. It's a note for everyone out there that's thinking along that technology 2.0 with electric vehicles and the concept of how distributed power really can change the way we do things from driving a car, powering our home, connecting device to device. Hey, everybody. How are you out there? My name is Shannon M. Brooks. I'm your boy from Brooklyn. So I have a question. The idea of solar power, when you're talking about the car, for instance, how scalable is the idea of solar power, right? So my idea is, we're talking about it in the privatization idea of what's happening. How scalable is this on, let's say, a town level, state level, city level? When you get into all these demographics of privatizing, you have the energy and you said you can sell it back if you have it on the car. But I think what people want to know is how scalable is this for everybody to have it, right? So in other words, it's great that you could put it on your house, but that's a sole investment. If everybody wants to have this idea of using solar power or storing solar energy, how can everybody have access to it? We talked a lot about the concept of community solar and just understanding that everyone that wants solar can't necessarily have it. I may not own my home. My home may be heavily shaded. I might have an HOA management group that just won't let it happen. So for those people out there, they need to seek alternate paths in order to, to take advantage of solar and going through projects that are developed through community solar programs. They're able to go in there and get them. In terms of doing this on a statewide level, I believe that there's a fair amount of federal policy that goes into the state initiatives. And one of those reasons is because our energy crosses state lines. So you have acting regional bodies that govern the overall transmission of power. The federal government needs to make those lines open for business in terms of if I'm generating solar power here in New Jersey, and New Jersey doesn't need my solar power, but Pennsylvania does, and I'm connected there through lines, through physical lines at some way, shape, distance, uh, really to scale doesn't matter. I'm able to to sell them the opportunity of drawing that power from me. So using the federal government to open up the, the highways in the state to implement local policies that really speak to the local communities. What's good for Jersey City is not necessarily going to be the same for 
let's say, Asbury Park or Sussex County. They're different demographics. They have different infrastructures there. So we really need to look at how we can implement on a state level and then give people access regionally and locally. Solar power. You'd have to be putting up solar power plants in different locations to supply power to that many homes in that area, right? Because what I'm thinking about is the idea of having it on a scale of a city, because we talk about all these small companies and the privatization of it, and like, oh, if I own a home and I put solar power on my property, I can sell that solar power back to the grid and they can sell it to somebody. What I was talking about is the idea of, I work for a large contracting company, and as a matter of fact, some of the building projects that I work on offer NYCHA and low-income housing. And basically what they're doing is they're putting these solar power panels on the roofs of all the new buildings that we're building, and they are taking that energy and putting it back into their buildings. So they're somewhat getting off the grid. So what I was saying, what I was thinking about is that how can this be brought to a larger scale where it's like power plants eventually wouldn't even be needed so that solar power would be taking that place? That's a great point. And it's a twofold area. So there's what we refer to as distributed generation. And, and that's where you're generating the power where it's being used, on your home, on your business roof, on an industrial facility. It could be a ground mount area, but connected to, to where it's being used there. And what that does is that lightens the traffic on congested utility grids, kind of tries to take the stress off it and stops it from just creating massive solar power plants and then distributing it which the distribution of it has a lot of other consequences. But it is twofold by having multiple power plants of solar. So, for instance, we just finished a project for PSCNG that is about 17 megawatts. So let's say about 70 acres of land that has a power plant built on a landfill, which is a, a whole other topic, but there's a big move here in New Jersey, the state opened up landfills specifically for the utility companies uh, to install solar on capped landfills that are land that can't be used for development or anything, so it makes perfect sense capitalizing it. So the utility companies are producing more and more of their own supply from solar in combination with power being used where it is. Now, in different parts of the countries, right? So if you're talking, even areas of Jersey City or Brooklyn, you're going to be limited. Solar is going to be shaded by surrounding buildings. It's going to have large parapet walls on the rooftop. So it really is limited in urban areas, and that's the big driver of this community solar. You can build it on a, a brownfield or even farmland or something underdeveloped and sell it back to the people that can't do it in those urban areas. But just to close it up, other areas of the country, you talk about Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona, New Mexico, they have 100 megawatt, 200 megawatt plants. Those are some of the scales of projects that Juan's company does. And those are bigger than fossil fuel power plants that are distributing the energy.
you talked about scale. So solar is scalable. As Steve mentioned, other areas in the country where space is not a limitation like it is here in the Northeast, Georgia, North East Carolinas, you could get to 2,000 acre solar farms, which is the ones that Strata Solar gets involved with, and smaller as well. And at that level, I mean, you're not PG anymore. You have to build a substation to go into high voltage and connect directly the transmission lines. And as far as going off-grid, I mean, there are microgrid situations. It's not, it hasn't taken very strong in the U.S. as of yet, but uh, military bases, they, they have a, a lot of them have adopted it already. So in an event that they could be completely independent from the utility. It is possible. Now, some utilities in certain states are very against it. They're scared, but in essence, we're alleviating the load. Just like the battery concept, that you're alleviating the load at certain parts of the day. I hope that answers your question. I'm going to give the most low-ball question right now. What is the best way to contact you if somebody has any solar questions or they want to check out your content? So I would say social media, LinkedIn, Twitter. I mean, I can speak for myself, but all of us are in social media. So LinkedIn would be the easiest way to contact us. If you want to email me, you could email me at um, jtruyol at stratasolar.com. So either way, I'm open to help, to educate, and hopefully jump on board. Our website is a great resource both for contacting us and additional technical information. So it's pvpolvictorpros.com. Twitter handles and LinkedIn will be in the notes. Yeah, same thing. LinkedIn is always a good way. Steve Schwert, Word Consulting, either one. Then emails always accessible. It's not listed. It's S-S-C-H-W-E-R-D at schwerdconsulting.com. You've got to spell out the whole thing. And then to reach Renoy or I at Renew Energy, you can email info at renewenergy.com. And our podcast, the Solar Maverick Podcast, is uh, available on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify and iTunes. We release a new episode every Tuesday. My question is around uh, recyclability. Like, what's the best process or way to recycle modules or solar panels that are no longer in use? Recycling PV modules. A lot of people don't know this, but when PV panel is being taken off the roof that's still operational, it doesn't produce as much power as it did when it was first assembled, but it produces enough power. And there's certain secondary markets, Mexico being one of our adjacent ones, where there's a marketplace for these modules. So they don't get recycled, they just get reused. That would be the best option. In terms of the actual module itself, there's, there's a metal binding, there's glass that can be melted down. So they're really just cannibalizing them back into their original parts and reusing some of those components over again. There's a certain amount of material that does have a... Unfortunately, not too many options to reuse them, but luckily the goal of the manufacturing facilities has been to continue to minimize the amount of material that they're using all while improving efficiency. So the amount of material that actually can't be recycled or reused has decreased substantially over time. Chris really touched on it. The materials are not extensive. 
You've got your metal around it, usually aluminum. You've got some glass, plexiglass, low-voltage wiring, and the silicon in, in the cells. But recycling, you talk about an area to get into in the future. It's on a very limited basis now because it's a fairly young industry and the solar panels have a 25-year warranty, minimum shelf life. Areas that were well out ahead of the U.S., like Europe and different parts, they're recycling on a large scale uh, was very much in place. That's just starting to happen. So in years ahead, recycling a PV is going to be a much simpler process, and it's going to be a much bigger industry. Steve might have just gave a little bit of this secret sauce. I fully believe in the next five to ten years that recycling in and around solar technology, which is semiconductor, but also battery uh, recycling is going to be a secondary emerging market from what we're seeing right now in the the R&D of these products. So if you hit big, just keep us in mind. Hi. So this is a different question. She wants to know about personal apartment solar panels. There are solar panels that are portable. You see them on backpacks, standalone units where you can charge a small battery. I know uh, I have a little photo cell that's got a battery built into it, and you sit it out in the sun, it charges, and you can charge up uh, an iPhone or an iPad from it. So on a portable basis, there's some options. Yeah, that your landlord probably isn't going to let that fly. But again, if you're renting, you can subscribe to a community solar project so you don't have to go through potential fire escape ballasting. But there's, there'll, there'll be options for you. Benoit and Suzanne will certainly be able to help out. Yeah, other parts of the world, like in Southeast Asia, there's the concept of a blockchain where you're selling energy between different neighbors in, in buildings. So you could, it's very similar to community solar, and they're not going to get into the differences, but there is a way for you to do it if you live in an apartment. Now, one of the things about solar is you have to get approval from the utility anytime you put solar. It doesn't matter how small it is to be interconnected with your utility service because, and it can't act like a generator. Like a lot of people think, oh, if I get solar and we've got another power outage, I've got the solar to use. Nope, doesn't matter. It could be middle of the day. You've got no power. Sun is bright. You can't use your solar. The equipment, the inverter systems are built to automatically shut down and not operate upon loss of utility power. And the reason why that is, if you're generating power, you're sending voltage back into the grid and the linemen are working on the grid, yeah, they're toast. First of all, thanks for coming together. Thanks for coming out. I think solar and sustainable energy in general, energy storage, is like a very sexy topic right now and becoming more and more of a sexy topic, mostly because of the efficiencies you guys have been talking about. Major players always change, and it's interesting. Strata Solar actually is one of the top five solar installers in the U.S. They do a lot of big projects. But what we've seen as an industry, there have been companies like Sun Edison, Solar City. There's another company I'm thinking about, but I can't mention it right now. Maybe a private that won't be around anymore. But what's happening is like the technology is 
changing dramatically. So new business models are being created. There's technology that we're not even thinking about that's going to come about. I know uh, like Google and Amazon have invested in this company that takes rocks and somehow has like some sort of storage capability. And I know they've been emailing me about their different ideas. So I, it's really hard to say other than, of course, the four companies that are here. To answer your question, you guys probably don't know this, but we have a floating photovoltaic array in New Jersey. It's somewhere central Jersey, it's like three to five megawatts, and it's literally floating on a freshwater body. So benefits where it prevents evaporation, protects fish life, etc., etc. But it, that's one of new application that in the U.S. we're gonna start seeing more and more. In China and Taiwan, it's huge. So the traditional PV mods or solar panels, they have the crystal silicon that the teacher kindly explained. And typically, they've been monofacial, meaning that the energy has been harvested from facing the sun. And now, the newer technology has bifacial, which has a reflectivity on the back sheet. So you harvest energy reflecting from the ground. So you're trying to absorb energy from every angle possible. So that's something that we will see as we try to get more into higher density equipment. Also, I think the great point is O&M is a huge part of it. And actually, PV Pros as well is one of the bigger O&M companies. They're based in Hoboken, and they focus basically all over the U.S. So it's just interesting. It's hard to kind of say. I mean, Solar City is not really around. It's actually purchased by Tesla. And uh, it constantly changes. It's a good question because energy storage you know, is evolving. It's so key to the future. And I honestly, I can't tell you who that huge players, who a couple of the companies that were supposed to be the key players for the storage, they fell off the map. So Tesla's doing a good job, but they've got their issues. And I think the other interesting, too, is Tesla has their technology open source. So uh, they're trying to get into China. China is investing billions of dollars with their companies because they realize energy storage is going to be a huge thing. So the companies we think now, I bet you five years from now, are totally different than what we thought about. All right. Before we wrap up, are there any closing remarks or final words you'd like to say? Carpe solum. It means seize the sun. And I think we've all seized the sun tonight. It was a hot one. But hey, now we got the shade. So on that note, I want to say a huge thank you to the the entire panel. Everyone, a huge round of applause, please. This is amazing. Thank you all for coming out. A round of applause for yourself. And one last thank you for Surf City for letting us be here. So the thing is, you don't got to go home, but we just got to transfer from this location to that bar because they're just wrapping up here. So you don't need to go. We're still partying. Just go there. That's my, that's my final note. That wasn't as good. But anyway, thank you all for coming. Thank you guys for being here. It's been amazing. We'll continue the party right now. Have a good night, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. 
If this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes and Stitcher Radio and leave us a five-star review. That helps us build this community, and that's what we're all about right now, building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can. Thank you.